0: i signed an order appointing jack smith and nobody
1: knows you and those who say jack is a fanatic
0: mr smith is a veteran career prosecutor wait what law have i broke the events leading up to and on january 6 classified documents and other presidential records
2: you understand what prison is send me to jail
3: Welcome to episode 23 of Jack, the podcast about all things Special Counsel. It is Sunday, May 7th, and I'm your host, Andy McCabe.
2: Hey Andy, I'm the uh, co-host here, Allison Gill. Lots of major, major breaking news in the special counsel investigation this week. I know we talk about this every week, week, like (laughs) what could next week possibly bring? Well, (laughs) a host of new stuff. We've got a deeper dive into the potential wire fraud case surrounding the Save America PAC. We have another member of the Ocha Nostra testifying before the grand jury. Yes. Uh, And if you haven't been a listener for a while, if this is your first time joining us, uh, welcome. But the Ocha Nostra, we'll go over who that is. Those, Those are the eight uh, Trump a- aides allies and and folks who were ordered to testify by Chief Judge Beryl Howell uh, after they tried, Trump tried to fight their testimony or block it using executive privilege. And we have some more information about the testimony of former Vice President Mike Pence.
3: We do. And the, and the cornucopia of news special counsel news continues because we've also got breaking news from The Times about potential gaps in the Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage subpoenaed by DOJ. Also, a Trump insider who may be cooperating. Uh, testimony from the Calamaris, my two <laughs> favorite Calamaris. Uh, additional subpoenas and a potential new arm of the investigation into Trump's involvement in the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tournament. We'll go over all of that and we'll take some listener questions.
2: Awesome. And if you have any questions for Andy or me or both of us, you can send them to us via email. The address is hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put the word Jack in the subject line. And Andy and I also would like to thank you and all of the patrons who joined us last Sunday for our cocktail reception in D.C. It was so much fun.
3: It really was. It was great to see everybody in person. I mean, we had some folks who traveled a long way to get there too. Seattle, a bunch of people from New York, New Jersey. So thanks so Denver, much for yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for coming and uh enjoying a, a really fun night with us. All right. So shall we get started?
2: Yeah, let's do this.
3: So we'll start with the expanding investigation into wire fraud. Now, this has been one of our kind of favorite things to talk about over the last several weeks because we saw this one early on, Allison. It's a very, you know, there's a lot of potential here in terms of putting some solid, you know, maybe less um, fancy, less sexy charges, but nevertheless, solid charges, easier to prove uh, on the plate. And so we get some reporting this week from Haberman, Foyer, and Swan at the New York Times, which indicates that federal prosecutors have been drilling down on whether Mr. Trump and a range of political aides knew that he had lost the race, but still raised money off of claims that they were fighting widespread fraud in the voting results. So in the past several months, prosecutors have issued multiple batches of subpoenas uh, in a wide-ranging effort to understand the Save America PAC. Uh, As you know, Allison, the first round was sent out before Jack Smith was appointed. Mm -hmm. And that one, of course, focused on Republican officials and vendors uh, and people who had received payments from Save America but it's changed a bit recently. Recently, investigators have honed in on the activities of a joint fundraising committee made up of staff members from the 2020 Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee, among others.
2: Yeah. And, and they've really been heavily focused on that. Uh, the details of the campaign's finances, um, their spending, their fundraising, uh, such as who was approving the email solicitations that were blasted out to lists of possible small donors and what those folks who helped coordinate that knew about uh what they knew about the fraud claims that, the you know, did they know that they were, you know, false claims that the you know, that they were deceiving and de- defrauding um, yeah. donors. Right. I mean, that's like that's the right. whole cornerstone of a wire fraud charge, which, by the way, carries a 20 year max sentence. It's not. It does. It's not a a little pittance. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the Trump folks will refer to it as a process crime or something, but you know, <laughs> technicality. It a, it's a mere technicality. It was a perfect campaign. Uh, they, these were fundraisers. They were perfect emails. But you know, we saw a lot of this in the January 6th testimony, like from Ron Romney McDaniel's and the RNC and 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 things like that. So I mean, it really they're really homing in on this.
3: They really are. And that that one uh, aspect of it, that question. Um, that they are going after um who specifically approved each email that's that's the pry bar getting just in just behind the door right that's just as you you got the you got the pry bar in there and now you're really starting to lean into it to pop that door open because whoever approved the message that's the person you can attribute the statement to so it goes from taking a you know random email from the Trump organization or the Trump campaign or whatever, and turning it into the statement of John Smith. It enables you to pin that charge on that person. And it puts that person in a position to say, wait, wait no, it wasn't just me, <laughs> it was these other people as well. So that's how you start to get yeah, people no, it rolling was, in.
2: Yeah, it was Parscale, and then Parscale says, no, it was Parlator, and Parlator that's says, no, right. it, it was just... Epstein, and then Epstein goes, no, Trump told me to do it. Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly,
3: exactly it, rolls it's uphill. the roll-up.
2: Yeah, it's exactly, yeah, it totally exactly does. it. And you know what's the difference here, uh, and you can speak to this pretty well, is uh, the the, I guess, the teeth, that DOJ has that the January 6th committee did not have, because they're able to bring criminal charges to the DOJ. And according to this reporting from the Times, the DOJ has been able to prompt more extensive cooperation from multiple witnesses. And you know, to to take that a step further, the prosecutors in Jack Smith's office have been able to develop more evidence than the House committee did because um, they have targeted communications between Trump campaign aides and other Republican officials to determine if those fundraising solicitations were knowingly misleading. Right. So, yeah, that's important because the January the January 6th committee was not able to get a lot of this evidence from their subpoenas. P- particularly, I'm thinking if you remember, they subpoenaed Salesforce, which was the outside vendor probably paid by the Save America PAC, which is you mm-hmm. know, part of this huge, big first round of subpoenas. Uh, and, uh, they had to basically give that up and the RNC as well. So they couldn't get a lot of that evidence, but the DOJ, uh, according to this reporting has subpoenaed Salesforce <laughs> and other vendors too. So it's like, it's, it's kind of disheartening that a co-equal branch of the government like Congress wouldn't have this kind of, uh, ability to extract this information. It kind of makes their ability to provide oversight, a little bit less toothless than the Department of Justice. But what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. The difference on the DOJ side is criminal penalties. The ability to levy criminal penalties on human beings for first ignoring subpoenas, you know, being held... Held in contempt by Congress doesn't mean much to or people. Or lizards
2: in human being suits like tech. Yeah, <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> but going to jail for for contempt <laughs> does matter to people. So, and there's no, you know, Congress holds you in contempt and they vote on it, and or I guess they vote first and then hold you in contempt and then they serve a referral to DOJ, which basically has no weight whatsoever. DOJ doesn't have to do anything with that. So there's all kinds of uh, handicaps built on that side of the system. Not so much on the DOJ side. If you don't respond to the subpoena, you can be held in contempt. If you uh, refuse to hand over everything, they they could start investigating you for obstruction. So there's teeth to that. And the same is true with uh, charges over witnesses, right? So you have the ability to hold people criminally responsible is a great incentive to get them to cooperate and start providing information and assisting the investigation. Congress doesn't have either of those two powers. And so, um, you know, they just, they don't get as far. It kind of like brings home this point that government oversight works and you get that check and balance between Congress and let's say the federal agencies, the executive branch, because people prior to the Trump administration, whether, even though they didn't like it, you submit to it. It's the right thing. Nobody likes to go up and testify in front of Congress, especially about bad news. Trust me, I did it many times. It was always awful. But you do it because that's what's required. That's what our system calls for. It's right that Congress, the side of our government that's most uh, you know answerable to the voters, has this sort of power over the executive branch agencies. And of course, they control the budget, and that's a lot of power as well. So- Um, But once that system starts falling apart and people begin ignoring their uh, obligations to comply with oversight, you get an executive branch or an administration that's kind of just decides to thumb their nose at and run amok. And I think we saw a lot of that during the four years of the Trump administration.
2: Yeah. And and we've seen this sort of happen over and over and over again with Congress versus DOJ. Not, I don't mean like they're going head to head, but, you know, to get information, to to get subpoenas, because that sales, you know, when they when the one six committee uh, subpoenaed Salesforce, Salesforce was like, yep, sure, you can have it all. It looks weird to us, too. We don't like it either. We thought this was strange, too. Here, have everything. And then, of course, the Trump side stepped in and said, no, no, wait a minute. um, You know, we, we want to sue to block this. And, of course, you know, being the the third party, you're going to wait until that whole thing is resolved. Right. Uh, but so DOJ was able to get the Salesforce stuff. We saw it with the RNC. DOJ was able to get the RNC stuff. We saw it with uh, John Eastman and the Chapman University emails. Chapman University mm-hmm. was 100% willing to hand everything over, but they had to go through a nine-month protracted uh, privilege battle and using crime fraud exception to get anything over to the January 6th committee. Meanwhile... Merrick Garland had all of Eastman's emails before the committee even had held hearings. Uh, we saw it with Mazars and the Trump mm-hmm. Organization. The criminal, um, you know, uh, prosecutors were and investigators were able to get those tax returns, you know, to sweet. whereas it took Congress, what, f- th- three, four years to be able to get to get the tax returns. So. Uh, and I think that and a lot of these privilege battles also go much, much faster when you're talking about the Department of Justice. So, you know, for, for those that we see sometimes the talking heads talking about how the DOJ is dumb and the January 6th committee is God and the January 6th committee did so much more than the Department of Justice. I, I just want kind of want everybody to step back and take a 30,000 foot view and see exactly what the Department of Justice has been able to get without much, you know, without many trials and tribulations, so to speak. Uh, that the January 6th committee simply wasn't unable to uh, to achieve, and I'm not saying that it's because the, the January 6th committee didn't do the work. Uh, you know, they certainly did, but uh, and they they did their level best to get this information and evidence. But it's just so much easier for the Department of Justice to get it.
3: Yeah, and at the end of the day, Congress, the the January 6th committee was essentially a political. Um, it's a political institution, and and it was a a political effort. I don't mean in terms of Republican or Democrat, but just in that it's part of the political side of government. Mm-hmm. And in the at the end of the day, the courts recognize I don't want to say a greater legitimacy on the criminal side, but maybe a more essential nature of what the criminal side of our government is doing. Like you have a grand jury; these things uh, need to happen quickly. Prosecutors need to be able to access uh witnesses and evidence before the evidence disappears or the witnesses lose their recollections or are uh vulnerable to uh tampering by people who um you know might not want them to testify so <laughs> the courts recognize that that's why you see these privilege battles being teed up and dis- and uh heard and decided quickly Instead of the, you know, how long did it take for uh Don McGann's privilege claim to get litigated before before McGann ever showed up anywhere to talk to anyone? That was over a year I know. in litigation. So I know. And you're then he finally did.
2: Then you're like, Okay, yay. And uh yeah, so I, I think that this is all. Uh, just, you know, very important sort of information to have in the back of your mind as we as we continue forward with these investigations. And also how long it takes us to get news from the Department of Justice versus us not, I shouldn't say from the Department of Justice, I should say about what the Department of Justice is doing. Because the right. 100% of this is not coming from the DOJ. It's coming from right. elsewhere, witnesses and witnesses' lawyers. Uh, but, you know, some other things uh, that have been looked at here by these prosecutors in- include... The nexus between research that the Trump campaign commissioned immediately after the election to try to prove fraud. Uh, It also they've been looking at public statements that Trump and his allies made at the time, uh, their fundraising efforts and the establishment, like how why why establish Save America in the first place. And remember, Jack Smith has obtained the testimony and reports and documents from two firms now, the Berkeley Research Group, which was paid six hundred thousand dollars by the Trump campaign to look for voter fraud, and Simpatico Software Systems, which was paid $735,000 uh, by the Trump campaign. Or at least he, they were billed. The Trump campaign was billed. I'm not sure. Yeah. These payments have That's been a, made. Uh, they're but,
3: accounting. We're not, we're not really <laughs> sure how that worked out, but we'll see. We'll see.
2: But the grand jury's been asking questions related to whether Donald was briefed on these findings by Berkeley, suggesting there had been no widespread fraud, and also... Uh, by the CEO uh, of the Sympatico software system, so yeah, and and both of them came back. They looked over twelve different subjects of, of potential voter fraud, and and you know when Donald Trump made that phone call to Brad Raffensberger on January second, and said we found five thousand dead voters, uh, but on January first, uh, the report from Berkeley Research Firm said they found nine nine dead voters in Georgia. Right. And so did Trump know ahead of that phone call to Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes, did he know that there weren't 5,000 instances of dead people casting ballots in in Georgia and that there were only nine (laughs) from this thing? But we do know from an Eastman email, by the way, like which I said, Jack Smith has had for a while, Uh, the DOJ, actually Merrick Garland got it a long time ago, Um, we know that Trump signed on to a lawsuit in Georgia after Eastman had advised him not to because the data had changed. And so it appears that he was advised, at least per those emails that were handed over under the crime fraud exception. Yeah, so- don't,
3: don't let that data change. You stop. <laughs> Just <laughs> charge right ahead and sign <laughs> that that court filing, basically attesting that everything is true and yeah. to the best of your ability. You know, it's interesting, too, on these on these two research group, uh, or, the, or the or Berkeley and Simpatico, I totally get why the grand jury is asking questions about whether or not Trump himself was personally briefed, because that's what you want as a prosecutor. You want to be able to have
2: the a witness line, identified
3: yeah. who's going to sit in, on the stand and say, "Yeah, I sat in front of Trump and I told him X, and he, you know, had a panic attack or whatever, <laughs> however he reacted." He threw the ketchup and right, but short of that. You can still get a lot out of these developments, even without that link to his personal briefing, right? You get the you get the the software guy comes in and he testifies, this is what we did. We prepared a brief and we sent it to this person, or we actually briefed this person in the White House. Then you got to bring that guy in and who did he communicate it to? And you get it all the way as close to Trump as you can. And that final link is going to be someone who um, maybe doesn't, says, oh, I don't remember if I ever told Trump.
2: Okay, Meadows or whatever.
3: Yeah. Yeah. How often, Mr. Hypothetical Meadows, did you get information like this and not tell the president? Isn't it your job to tell the president? So there's a whole, what I'm trying to say is you can leave the suggestion. You can raise the issue for the jury to consider whether or not it's reasonable to conclude that Trump paid over a million dollars for all this research and never, ever heard or cared about the result. I mean, that's the kind of thing that a jury can say, yeah, I just don't believe that. Well, I
2: often, you know, I go to the vet and I spend $10 million on my cat and I, but I don't want to know the results (laughs) of any of the tests. uh, Don't tell me. I, the council. Look, the cat is alive. It's a spectacular cat. He's walking around. Everything's fine. Um, my other lawyers told me that the cat is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah just,
3: and 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 now let's um, let's add to your hypothetical. Imagine you were the type of person who routinely stiffed people and did not pay them what you owed them. <laughs> so we know that like a million
2: bucks I'm goes out of the pack. I'm not paying the vet. Pack, I don't like these results.
3: That's right. A million dollars goes out of the pack to these two companies.
2: Almost a 1.5 million. Like 1. Yeah. <laughs>
3: It's not it's there's it seems highly unlikely that he had zero knowledge of what was happening. Although I'll
2: tell you what, you know, if you if you claim that you were going to, uh, you know, if you were fundraising to find election fraud in the election defense fund and you spent. One point five million dollars looking for it, that's reasonable. But where'd the other two hundred and (laughs) forty eight million dollars go? That's that's the problem, right?
3: Ultimately, it's like a willful blindness type of argument, right? Well, okay, so you spent all this money to to find all the, and what did you? What did you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever happened from any of the, the, whatever. What did we get from all that money? I don't know. I should ask the guys. I should ask the team someday. It's just not. um, It's not credible. So if that's going to be his biggest defense, um, if I were the prosecutors, I'd be like, okay, yeah, come on in, put that defense on. I'm happy. I'm. I'm comfortable with that. They've. They've lined up a. you know, a lot of witnesses and uh, evidence and information that they could put on to counter that defense, um, counter and and raising it in in the terms of a willful willful blindness sort of argument.
2: Yeah, and you can't just say that because a couple of dollars were spent on researching election fraud that the whole kit and caboodle that you raised was like every dollar has to have gone toward that. I mean, it's, you can't you know unless right. you specifically say in your thing that, you know, only part of this money is going to go toward that. The rest goes to me and my yacht or, you know, I mean, you know, whatever it is. And, yeah, and there or were even... really no disclaimers on any of these emails that say that. Right. And that was one of the issues Salesforce had and why they were so willing to hand their stu- their junk over to the January 6th committee, uh, but were eventually uh, stopped. But, you know, as I said, John yeah. Smith has subpoenaed uh, Salesforce. I'm sure he has all that information by now.
0: Right,
3: right, right.
2: All right. Well, we have some blockbuster reporting from uh, not only uh, The New York Times, but CNN as well. Um, It's kind of piggyback uh, reports. And we're going to talk about that. But we're going to take a quick break first. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at Lawyers lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
3: Hey everybody, welcome back. All right, let's get into the latest in the documents case. And some explosive reporting from Caitlin Pollins and uh, Paula Reed over at CNN, followed up by reporting from Haberman, Foyer, protests, Goldman and Schmidt at The Times.
2: Yeah. And first of all, the reporting from CNN uh, says that it's, it's time to play this jingle. Subpoena. Yes. Last year, the Department of Justice subpoenaed the Trump Organization for five months of Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage and the handling of that subpoena has triggered a new round of subpoenas from Jack Smith including Matthew Calamari senior and Matthew Calamari junior uh, both calamaris testified thursday and we learned about this on thursday which is a testament to how leak proof the jack smith probe is you know and we talked about that um, sort of this just wall of cone of silence within the within this investigation and how, you know, uh, Judicial Watch, Tom Fitton tried to get the names of the Jack Smith prosecutors um, so, you know, they could sick the IRS on them for intense uh, audits or whatever. Um, but uh, that, you know, that the, the Jack Smith's like, nope, and then just goes back into his turtle shell and, <laughs> and keeps prosecuting, <laughs> uh, keeps yeah. investigating. But both of the Calamaris testified Thursday. We learned about it Thursday. Now, Calamari senior is the executive vp and coo of the trump org and he largely oversees security for trump properties among other things and his kid calamari jr is the director of security for the trump org and the calamari's according to this reporting from the times are only two of several witnesses that testified on thursday but we don't have any info on who else was there that day um yeah and we also know that prosecutors have previously brought in lower level Trump employees for questioning about the surveillance footage specifically including Andy how it may have been handled in response to the subpoena for it and if it could have been tampered with.
3: Yeah. That that is re- there's a lot packed in here that's really interesting. I I first I would say the fact that they're still bringing in new witnesses that's a sign of kind of a healthy grand jury investigation, right? You're getting you're creating new and viable leads from the testimony of earlier witnesses and that that's we've talked about this before grand jury subpoenas typically go out in round after round if you're act, and that shows that you're actually making progress and you're getting from one place to another secondly that the article also says that some former witnesses have now been brought back and sometimes for very brief testimony so that could be a sign that despite the the productivity of the grand jury, it may be honing in on a result, right? Because you bring back a witness when after they've testified and then you've reviewed their testimony and then you heard from someone else, a a lingering question comes up, some new issue that you didn't have a chance to ask them about the first time has now just been uncovered, and so you need them back to kind of clean up that detail, so it's, that's likely what's happening there.
2: It's narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. You and I first reported in one of the first handful of episodes of the Jack podcast that uh, that Jack had sent out huge, sweeping subpoenas for you know thirteen different things, including anybody who uh, was at the legislative branch that impeded the electoral count, anybody who was in the executive branch that impeded the electoral count, uh, documents concerning fundraising, anybody who was a VIP at the rally on one six. Anybody who basically had anything to do with anything ever surrounding January sixth, right? Uh, and and we saw the same with the documents too. And now it's getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And now we're down to to the the narrow scope of the surveillance footage that was yep. subpoenaed secondarily to the documents, right? Uh, after that, they, you know Jay Brat went down to to Mar-a-Lago to on June third and got those thirty-eight documents in a red, well double-taped envelope. Yep. Then on June 24th, we got this subpoena uh, for the surveillance footage, um, and so I mean that's pretty huge news. And and they they go on here to say seriously, this New York Times report has like 15 different headlines. There's so
3: <laughs> there's so many lines, so um, many directions it's going.
2: Now, investigators, according to the New York Times, have previously asked about a text message from Walt Nada, not a good witness to Calamari Sr. and subsequent conversations about the surveillance footage. And it seems like a lot of this new investigatory, um, you know, processes have been born from the fact that Walt Nada didn't cooperate with the Department of Justice. Uh, And so that's kind of how this sort of thing works. And and we'll get into that in a little bit of of detail in, in a minute. But um, the Times expanded on, the, on this particular report about the NADA text message thing, stating the DOJ had previously tried to get Walt NADA to flip, but then he buttoned up. The, you know, there's a carrot and a stick, right? You can go in with the carrot and say, hey, you're awesome. Tell us the story. Or you can go in with the stick and say, we're going to charge you with something if you don't help us. And they, they chose the stick and threatened charges against Walt NADA, which caused him to retreat uh, and lawyer up and yes. he he wouldn't play ball at all so th- that that force kind of forces the DOJ to begin investigating him as a target and it seems like a lot of this surveillance footage stuff has come out from that from Nada's uh unwillingness to yeah. assist uh, the DOJ. They may not have found that text message if NADA had cooperated. Uh, and that text message may have been the thing that led to the Calamari subpoenas, and then, which may have led to the fact that they found gaps in these tapes. It's, I, I don't know sort of right. what what order everything went in, but it's really expanded now. And this talk, I wanted to ask you because this happened a lot in the Mueller investigation. There were a lot of people who were very uncooperative, recalcitrant, obstructive. And uh, the, you know they wouldn't provide uh, a good information, and so you had to start investigating them, which turned up all these other threads that you have to follow to their logical conclusions to wrap yeah. up. Yeah,
3: yeah. So I that's that's right, and I think the I think the Times article lays it out pretty well, but they leave one reference out that I think would have helped. So the 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 carrot side of the incentive to get someone to cooperate is hey, you know, you know a lot, you're important. And also, if you cooperate fully and tell us the truth about everything, we won't charge you. You get basically immunity, right, for uh, being on the government side and helping the case. And then, of course, the stick is we're going to investigate you and then we're going to put you in jail. So you better cooperate with us uh, and and prevent that. The problem with Nada is he lied to them the first time they talked to him. So the, the Times doesn't really... Uh, point that out or draw a lot of attention to that in this article. And that fact that they started out with Nauda, um deceiving them on the questions he was asking, that damages his ability to ever be a really good witness later on, because you'd have to bring that out on the stand, that first he lied and then later he told the truth. Um, it also undermines the, the DOJ's uh, estimation of him, right? So in order to be a full-on cooperator, you've got to be pretty sure that this person is telling you the truth, and they're going to continue telling you the truth, even about things that could make them look bad. And it sounds like they really didn't probably have a lot of trust in NADA right from the beginning, and rightfully so, if he lied to them. Nevertheless, they ended up going with the stick and investigating the guy, and that is likely what led to the uh, discovery of this text message between he and Calamari Sr. So let's step back for one second and think about this issue with the videotape. There's a couple of ways that concerns about how the videotape was handled, i.e. was it tampered with, may have come to light. It could be, let's say some other witness tells you uh, something that they did on a particular day Let's say, hypothetically, walking down the hallway and going into the room with the boxes of documents. You would then go back and take the tape that you have and look at it to see if you could confirm that because you'd want to prove that the witness had told you the truth. It's a way of corroborating the witness statement. Well, if you went back and looked at the tape and there was no sign of that witness doing that there, now you have an inconsistency. And One of the ways to explain that inconsistency is somebody's gone in and manipulated the tape. So that's a one that's one way that you could become aware of the fact that what was given to you may have been tampered with. Another way is just to have your video forensics folks, which we have very very capable video forensics people at Quantico, the FBI does. Um there are tell telltale signs that are left on a uh on a video whether it's old school tape or actual just DVR that show where things have been taken out or put back in. It's, you know, it's pretty pretty easy to get to the bottom of that. But in any case, it's, it seems like DOJ has uh, some real concerns here that somebody was playing fast and loose with the videos, which is like, you know, straight up obstruction.
2: Yeah, and I I wanted to, you brought up a great point about who who else could have been involved in this. And there's a tiny, teeny one single sentence thing that didn't really get any airplay. Uh, that's in this report that that says and i'm quoting here in interviews recently the justice department has been focused on walt Nada and the help he received from a mar-a-lago maintenance worker in moving the boxes so there you go you know ma- <laughs> that yeah. maintenance worker could be very key and i'm sure uh it's it they are according to this reporting and the sources that uh that they have that 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 the DOJ knows about this maintenance worker and has been asking That's questions right. about this maintenance worker. So um, the the amount of news that has come out of this, here's some <laughs> more headlines, additional blockbuster headlines from the subsequent Times reporting. Jack Smith has obtained the confidential cooperation of a person who has worked for Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So this is the first cooperator that at least we know about, official cooperator, a- and that's not really I, – I, let me caveat that by saying we don't know if they're an official cooperator. We don't know if they've signed a cooperation deal. And we do know that there have been other folks cooperating with the Department of Justice like Cassie Hutchinson, and we, but they, you know, we hadn't heard that they had signed a cooperation agreement. But, and so this may just be one of those. Uh, but this is a, a big deal to have a, an inside person who worked at Mar-a-Lago to, to be a cooperator in the documents case.
3: Yeah, very very big deal. I mean, this is this is how big cases are made. You get people who are uh who have uh access to the information that you need and good knowledge of what happened and ability to present it in an effective way as a witness. Um and you get them to to uh you know, officially go on board with the government as a cooperator. Typically the way that happens is they are facing some sort of potential criminal uh liability or jeopardy themselves. And so they come in and they're debriefed in what some people call a queen for a day, which I yep. think is both uh, sexist and also doesn't really represent how many days it takes to do this. It's, it takes <laughs> much more than one day. Uh. But in any, in any case, you bring them in and you give them, you put them in what we call a proffer session, where they basically give up everything that they know to the prosecutors and the agents present. And it has to include things that you did wrong, right? You have to expose yourself to the prosecutors and the agents in terms of your criminality. And at the end of all that, you write up this massive memo of everything they did and everything they know, and then you come to an agreement that you'll this cooperator will plead guilty to some minimal charge, and at the end of their cooperation, the government will go before the judge and make a recommendation for a downward departure in sentence for whatever it is they pled guilty to.
2: It's like a, something um, like a 35, I can't... I just... So memory is not serving, but the number thirty five is involved
3: yeah, so it's i it's um five k one letter i think is actually ah, the, the letter five k one goes letter
2: thirty five is after the yeah you are thinking of a rule thirty five rule thirty five is after the person's been sentenced
3: convicted and then yeah. then they start cooperating yeah so yep. a little bit different, but same result you get a big break, and a lot of witnesses you know especially white collar type situations like this, will walk away with like no no jail time or anything like
2: that. Right. Nothing. Basically you're, you're free. So that's how
3: you, yeah, that's basically the process to become a cooperator. There are other people who just choose to cooperate. They decide they're going to tell what they know and uh, they haven't done anything wrong. And, but really we refer to those people as witnesses, not right, cooperators. Right. That feels like
2: Hutchinson, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Someone who's just like, I'm, you know, I've had it. I'm just going to say what's up. And they haven't actually done anything wrong, so they're not in any jeopardy.
2: Yeah. And the fact that this is worded like they've obtained confidential cooperation doesn't necessarily mean that it is a cooperator, like a, like, somebody like if who's, somebody
3: signed up. Correct. Right. They, they keep saying in the article, they have an insider at Mar a Lago who's cooperating. And that could just mean they have someone who has been a, you know, regular and frequent witnesses provided good information who's actually still working at Mar-a-Lago. And that is like very, very valuable. You know, when you have someone who's doing that, you also, and I'm not saying that this is happening in this case, but it it would present the opportunity to have that person cooperate what we call proactively. So if you have an insider in the organization, you could say to them, hey. You know, look for this. Look for boxes with these sort of markings. Go into this room and tell us what you find there, or something as sim- simple as um, the next time you're there. You know, draw us a map of everything of what you know what it looks like on the in the basement or something like that.
2: Or take a picture. One of the one right. of these we witnesses. Need, we need yeah. to know
3: what it looks like inside this room, or we need to know. Here's one that I've done many times. I need to know what the door lock looks like on this door. So go up close to it and take a picture with your cell phone, because that's like something that you would do in a very different situation. When you were planning some sort of a tactical entry, you want to know what that hardware looks like, because there's different ways to get past it. What's much more common is, hey, here's a little piece of equipment. Next time you see Mark Meadows... Ask him this question and record his answer. <laughs> that happens a lot. Those are called consensual recordings, and they can be very, very powerful pieces of evidence. So I don't know that any of these things are happening, but if you have an insider at Mar-a-Lago,
2: that opens up a world of investigative possibilities. And that's loosely worded here, too, that the confidential cooperation of a person who has worked for Trump at yeah. Mar-a-Lago. So again, we don't know who it is, how long they've been cooperating, whether they're still there. Uh, but we do know the Justice Department is moving aggressively now to develop a fuller picture of how the documents Trump took with him from the White House were stored, who had access to them, how the security s- camera system at Mar-a-Lago works. Perhaps somebody could tell you where the cameras are located and which direction they're pointing um, and what Trump told aides and his lawyers about what material he had and where it was uh, and you know possibly misled them. Now, the cooperating witness, Andy, is said to have provided investigators, just like I said, with a photo of the storage room where the material had been held, which at least seems to indicate that he was still at Mar-a-Lago while cooperating, unless he just likes to take photos of the inside of storage <laughs> rooms, you know? <laughs>
3: Here's my collection of storage room photos. Oh, good, you happen to have one from Mar-a-Lago. But if I, I knew
2: something, it. you know, if I worked at Mar-a-Lago and I was smart enough to knew, know something was f- funky and going on, I might snap a few pictures to just have and hold and, <laughs> you know, that I might need at some point later, but, you know, we I don't- would
3: say, if you're work- anybody who's working someplace where they feel like they need to be collected evidence of possible criminal activity at work,
2: it's time for a new job. Go someplace else. Yeah, or go to the FBI and say, you want me to wear a wire? (laughs) Um, Prosecutors believe Walt Nada had failed to provide them with a full and accurate accounting of his role of movement of boxes containing the classified documents. And uh, it it seems as though this part of the investigation here with the surveillance footage is that they're trying to fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. And um, they also say in the past... A uh, few weeks at least four more mar-a-lago employees have been subpoenaed along with another person who had visibility into trump's thinking when he first returned material to the archives um so that's also of of note because this opens us up to a whole gaggle of people uh yeah. right we, you know and we could talk about who might be this you know this mole and who might not be but i mean it's 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 potentially so many different people. Um, Now, prosecutors have also issued several subpoenas to the Trump Organization, seeking additional surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago. That's brand new reporting. It was big news when we heard about the initial subpoena on June 24th for their surveillance tapes. Now we know there have been subsequent subpoenas to the Trump Organization for uh, additional footage. Um, And prosecutors have questioned a a number of witnesses about Gaps in the footage, this brings me back to Nixon, my friend. This brings me back to the eighteen minutes. All missing. roads lead to
3: Nixon <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't they um so uh, there that there's potential gaps in this footage uh and that led prosecutors to subpoena the software company that handles the surveillance footage for all the properties andy uh and this could open the door. Were it not for Walt Nata refusing to cooperate because he's not a good witness, as your dad joke says, now they have, you know, surveillance footage for all the properties is no longer fruit of the poison tree. Uh, That's
3: right. Yeah. I mean, it's all very logical if you step back and look at it. You know, they are obviously the video has been a big thing from the beginning. It's what got them really probably over the hurdle for the search warrant last summer now they see there's maybe some kind of fugazi aspects to the video and so you're going to bring in more witnesses you're going to expand your scope a little and start talking to people who are just have like technical roles at mar-a-lago because you want to really nail down here like who has access to the system how do you work it how you know can you go what happens to the tapes after they're you know completed how's how long are they held for all that kind of stuff and of course if there's an outside contractor involved, that's even better. Because now <laughs> you're talking about like, you know, Berkeley Research or Simpatico Software, like they don't care. They don't want to be involved in this. You hit them with a subpoena and you're going to get their view of, you know, you can imagine a um, an offsite contractor who's managing the digital video recorder system. There are logs that, you know, computers create logs every time a Commands are input and data is downloaded and or changed. There are logs that indicate exactly what happened, when, from what user, on what system.
2: Yeah, and there's um, brilliant uh, analysts at the FBI that's who, right. can, who can track these keystrokes. Uh, About And and follow the trail about what happened. And we also know that Molly Michael from previous reporting has 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 been able to provide through her text messages a pretty good timeline of, of events that sort of have helped prosecutors drill down on this. And, you know, keep in mind, too, prosecutors got to question Evan Corcoran about his phone call with Trump on June 24th, which is the day of the initial Department of Justice subpoena for the surveillance footage. And they got that testimony using the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. So that phone call all of a sudden becomes a lot more important because you and I had talked about this previously. It could have just been Corcoran picking up the phone and saying, Trump, we got a subpoena for our stuff. All right, go do the thing. Now, um, especially since that testimony had to come pursuant to uh, the application of the crime fraud exception from a federal judge, it makes that phone call Uh, a lot more interesting. And I'm really, really very interested about how... uh, Tell me... uh, Evidence question for you. If I have to go and subpoena surveillance footage from an organization uh, about something that happened in one location, and that... Um, surveillance footage is all together for all the locations. Am I now allowed to look at that other surveillance footage at Bedminster and Sterling and the Trump tower and, and everything else? Uh, Or do I have to sequester that because it's not at the location that I'm having uh, a question about? And does that tie into this next little bit of news um, that the, there, there are subpoenas to the Trump organization about records pertaining to trump's dealing with the professional golf venture known as live golf, um, which is this you know the saudi backed venture that uh, that has been happening at uh, trump golf courses and the pga has been it's been a, a thing and in, in the golf world i'm not really i don't really follow the golf world too much but there were people who were like i'm going to be team live and i'm going to stay team pga <laughs> and you know all this other uh, stuff but the, this is a saudi-backed venture and for some reason jack smith is looking into it and what does that have to do with the documents case? You know,
3: I mean, it's it's really hard to put that put that piece on the on the into the puzzle just yet. That's it's so kind of out of left field. So, um, to answer your question about the subpoena, um, you know, if it were a search warrant, the answer would probably be no. You have to stay within the four corners of the warrant and uh you can only review that material that was specifically requested and described in the warrant but uh subpoenas are a little different the standard for a subpoena is just simple relevance right you you can if you have an investigation going you can serve a grand jury subpoena uh and as long as the subpoena is not overly broad and as long as it is designed to reasonably uh uh target material that could potentially be relevant in the in the investigation then it's it's fair game. So
2: because if I were a defense attorney, I would I would I would do the fruit, fruit of the poisonous tree argument like, hey, yeah, you were investigating a document movement and surveillance at Mar-a-Lago. And all of a sudden now you have video footage of MBS at Bedminster burying documents in Ivana's grave. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. But, you know, whatever else comes out of it that isn't sort of like you said, within the four corners of that search warrant. But I'm wondering now if we're not going to be able to, if we're not not be able to, but if we're going to see um, potential searches of other properties based on surveillance footage. That's where I was going. Yeah. That's
3: where I was heading. Like not knowing exactly how this live golf angle features in the narrative here, you can't rule out the idea that other locations and therefore the video surveillance of those locations might be relevant. So it's just hard to say. I can't imagine how you get there right now because I really don't understand the live golf thing. But, um, you know, I I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Like, I think it's it's possible. Obviously, Jack Smith and his team know a lot more than we do about – the facts and what they're dealing with and where they're going, where they think they need to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, we're still in that moment where anything could be possible.
2: Well, and everybody thought I was crazy when I made a big deal about that secret meeting, that little golf without the golfing that Trump held on his Sterling course in Virginia, where he met with folks uh, about the Live Golf Tournament and Epstein and Mike Roman were there. Uh, And I was like, what's going on here? How many of these guys have been subpoenaed? What are they talking about? I was like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Uh, But it makes that meeting a little more interesting because that involved the live tournament. And, you know, I just watched Mary McCord speculate on deadline White House. And this is pure speculation. But she says, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Donald may have used some of his classified documents. He didn't want to give some of them back. Uh, in, you know, in order to maybe blackmail the Saudis into investing in his golf tournament or ho- at least holding them at his properties or that he was uh, meeting with uh, the Saudis about some of the information he had uh, because he did mention that he that Nixon uh, made you know, could have made 18 million dollars off of his tapes, which also had gaps. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm it's very <laughs> gappy tapes, gappy tapes. It's, it's just interesting Um
3: I feel like that should be a band's name, Gappy, Gappy Tapes,
2: Tapes, but all right, maybe not. It's just interesting that that the live tournament came up in just this one rando non sequitur paragraph. And I'm like, uh, what? That should be a whole separate story, you guys. But there were just so many headlines in this thing.
3: I agree. And I like Mary's comment about... Focusing on what Trump may or may not have done with the classified information that we know he had, because that kind of takes us to the other side of the story, right? We've been focused so much on who moved the boxes when and what do the videos show of the boxes moving around and all that kind of stuff. It's important, but let's it forces you to remember, like there is a question here, and there have been allegations uh, in public reporting recently that he was showing documents and showing maps and things to guests at Mar-a-Lago. So. If they've developed that line of inquiry and they have some reason to believe that someone associated with the Live Golf uh, organization, whether that's, you know, political figures, whatever, connected to the the, uh, royal family in in Saudi Arabia or not, those people were at... Uh, Mar-a-Lago, it's not unreasonable that you would subpoena Live Golf to get those uh, individuals to testify about what they had seen or what they had been shown. So it's kind of an interesting prospect. It is completely speculative uh, at this point, but um, an interesting one, nevertheless.
2: Yeah, and if there's other side things involved here with the Saudis that does that don't you know that don't have to do with the documents case, those can be pursued separately. That we don't have to wait for those to follow the end of the you know of the road uh, of investigation to to bring charges in the documents case. Um, but you know, it's it's still all well within the scope. Um, A couple other things here. This is (laughs) this is such a big show because there's so much news. Um, Corcoran, according to this reporting, Corcoran testified that several Trump employees told him the Mar-a-Lago storage room was the only place where the documents were kept. Corcoran also recounted to the grand jury how Trump did not tell his lawyers of any other locations where documents were stored, which may have effectively misled the legal team. Also, in interviews recently, the Justice Department has been focused on Walt Nauta, we said, and that maintenance man. Uh, that was an interesting tidbit again. Um, they've asked multiple people questions about uh, moving boxes, as well as questions about the security cameras, what they did and did not capture, um, So that they, I, I, just presumably so they could compare it to what they got pursuant paid, to the subpoena right. and what's missing. And that's why I, I believe that they're able to tell that there are gaps there. Um specifically, they've asked questions about whether NATA was walking to or from the residence on the property, according to a person briefed on the matter. Um, and a lot of this part of the a lot of this part of the investigation, like I said, is because they weren't able to get NATA's cooperation. But Mike Schmidt told Nicole Wallace, he thinks the DOJ, this, you know, using the stick instead of the carrot backfired on Jack Smith because it failed to get Nada's cooperation. But I don't see it that way. Mary McCord also said, um, you know, Jack wouldn't indict the documents case on the cooperation of Walt (laughs) Nada, right? (laughs) No,
3: it's certainly not when Nada started out his interaction with the government, but by lying about what he knew. Yeah. I, I mean, so yeah. I don't
2: think they would rest the whole thing on that. And I'm sure I'm sure that when they went in with the stick instead of the carrot, they were like, hey, if he doesn't take the the bait, we can just investigate him and get all this stuff and get all the surveillance tapes and get all the everything. Uh, if he does. I mean, I, I, honestly, a lot of times when you get a cooperating witness, you don't get as much information as you would as if, as if you're full on investigating them. So. You know, I I don't know that I agree with that characterization of the DOJ made a mistake, but I here think we it's are. too
3: yeah, it's too early to tell. And you know, they're they they also say in the article that Nada's attorneys have now cut off all communication with DOJ. It's not a bad play on Nada's part, to be He's honest. Paying because, them, yeah, and I mean um, <laughs> that's also being investigated. <laughs> it may be it guess. may be that the the meter just ran out. Uh, he f- neglected to put another quarter in, but. You know, he knows they're interested in him. He knows they want his testimony. Um, He's not really fully on board yet. So he's he's, going to let it hang out there a little bit and see what happens. If he ends up in trouble, i.e. he gets indicted, I'm fairly confident he'll take another strike at cooperating. And that's just Mm -hmm. how, that's the cat and mouse game. Is that kind of how it goes?
2: Like, oh yeah, go ahead and... I dare yeah. you and then they indict you and you go okay.
3: Put yeah. up or shut up. What do you got? Uh, oh, mm-hmm. here's what I got. I got a 16 count indictment. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's sit down. And right, cuz they again. may
2: have they may have only presented him with an indictment like a 1001 charge when he lied to yeah. them. And yeah. now they might come back with obstruction of justice, which is a 20 year max yeah. charge uh, mm-hmm. on the 1519 count. So, or at least 5 years if you're looking at regular obstruction of justice, yeah. and that might be a little more persuasive.
3: The problem, though, it's a dicey game for Mr. Nauta to play because by the time he gets indicted, other people have been as well many additional witnesses have been into the grand jury you've gone out and subpoenaed every other uh, resort and the live well, golf well that's why you cooperate
2: early and often that's right because right. the so, first guy gets the best deal that's and that's right and jack smith might, oh well, no cooperate cooperate no we don't we don't need you anymore don't need we, you, now, you made us go for three more months on this fucking investigation yeah. to get all of this information and now we have enough to nail you to the wall you had your chance you missed it Walt. Yeah.
3: yeah so you know, everybody's trying to suss everybody else out and and see see what hand are they playing and uh, how, how late can you go in the game. Yeah, you know, he still works for Trump. He still travels with him. Mm-hmm. So he's clearly not decided, okay, I got to get on the side of,
2: you know, Team America here. Maybe they got his mom. Remember, they were talking, <laughs> somebody said, like Walt Nauta's mom had something to say about the whole thing. Mrs. Nauta. Mm. and who knows the co- who the cooperator is? It could be the maintenance worker, could be Evan Corcoran, could be Molly Michael, could be yeah. one of the you know dozens of other staffers that worked there. It could be you know we don't know who it is. I'm excited to learn, and I'm sure we might. But all this reporting, Andy, also speaks to the broad scope of of Jack Smith's investigation. It started with January 6th, uh, documents and obstruction of either of those. Now it's grown to include the super PACs what we you know wire fraud uh, and the payment of witness lawyers. Uh, we have additional obstruction with possible evidence tampering with the surveillance tapes and now we've got the live golf tournament wrapped up in here, which could lead to other Saudi investments in the Trump family, including kushner and I mean it, you know who knows. Where this will go, but he is not. This isn't the Mueller investigation. <laughs> this isn't Rod Rosenstein saying you can investigate these two things and only these six things about the first thing and only these three right. things about the second thing. And uh, you know, meanwhile, talking to Trump saying, "Don't worry, I'll land the plane," and just continuing right. to narrow the scope, uh, which was one of the obstruction charges in in Volume Two was the the um, trying to narrow the scope uh, uh, of the Mueller investigation. And he's not walking around. Uh, you know, on on a knife's edge, w- wondering if he's going to be fired by Merrick Garland. So <laughs> that's right.
3: Garland's <laughs> yeah. basically said, "Have at it, and let me know when you're done." And it's clearly they are having at it. This is a wide ranging, aggressive, forward leaning investigation. You know, I'm honestly his biggest enemy right now is the clock. At some point, he's going to have to um, he's going to have to decide what to do uh, early enough on in the game that he can actually do it without getting all bollocks up in DOJ policy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right. We have a little bit more news to get to. I know you think that's the end of the show because we've been talking at you for an hour. Uh, But no, we do have a little bit more to get to. But we have to take a quick break. Stick around.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct.
1: I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica.
0: This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money.
1: So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you,
0: I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
2: All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, We now have testimony from a fourth member of the Ocha Nostra. That's half. Quatra Nostra have testified. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) And you beat is... me to
3: it. You absolutely <laughs> beat me to it. I was like, what's it? A... Oh You're going God, quattro I Nostra." Quattro,
2: yeah. <laughs> All right. And this is Dan Scavino. One Dan Scavino. So as you know, the Ocho Nostra uh, is our name. Uh, thank you, Aaron, uh, mm-hmm. who who named the Ocho Nostra. It's eight people. Meadows, Stephen Miller, Dan Scavino, John Ratcliffe, uh, Robert O'Brien, Nick Luna, Johnny McEntee, and Ken Cuccinelli. There you go. Uh, and four have now. The testimony here is pursuant to former Chief Judge Beryl Howell rejecting Donald Trump's attempts to block all their testimony using executive privilege. The appellate court denied Trump's appeal and would not issue a stay. And Cuccinelli was brought in that afternoon.
3: (laughs) Get them while they're hot. Get them in quick.
2: (laughs) And so we know that Miller, Cuccinelli, and Ratcliffe had already testified. And this week is Dan Scavino's turn. Um, Scavino uh, was held in contempt with Navarro, Yes. and referred to the Department of Justice but the Department of Justice only went after Navarre they did't Right, held in contempt of Congress contempt of Congress they de- decided to not prosecute criminal contempt for Dan scavino uh, scavino helped spread false claims of voter fraud he might have he might know what went into those fundraising emails I don't know but he, he was very big on the on the voter fraud thing and uh, the big lie he also has information about discussions with Trump on January 5th about convincing members of Congress not to certify the election. And he has info about Trump's movements on January 6th, uh, because it's very important, you know, that um, had he wanted to go to the Capitol. um, And now, you know, we just we just got the seditious conspiracy convictions of the Proud Boys and, and, and Tario specifically, who wasn't anywhere near the Capitol. He was in Baltimore that day. So. Um, that's, I think, of note, uh, Trump's movements on January 6th, uh, because if he wanted to go to the Capitol, that could show what his intent was. And info about the White House communication strategy leading up to the attack on the Capitol. So that's what's going on there. And then we also have some other news from CNN, right?
3: That's right. So we also learned this week from CNN's Caitlin Polantz and Jamie Gangell, that Special Counsel Jack Smith sat in on the federal grand jury proceeding while former Vice President Mike Pence testified for more than five hours last week. So while there, apparently Smith and Pence had some interaction while Pence was at the courthouse, which makes sense. And one source described the interaction as respectful. Um, Smith's appearance is the first known time the Special Counsel has attended a grand jury proceeding in the investigation, which is also, uh, I would expect that to be the case.
2: So um, what, what about that, um, Andy? Because if that's the first time, I don't know if that's the first time, but t- talk to me about Smith's participation. Did Mueller go into the federal grand jury at all? Or did he just have the line prosecutors do it? Why do you think Jack Smith himself wanted to be there? Is it because the, the gravity of having a former vice president there? I mean, what, what, what are your, what's your take
3: well, it was certainly intentional, right? It's not like oh, just I had the I had the hour. I figured I'd go over and did there. Did he
2: wear his purple robe and
3: I hope and just... so. I <laughs> hope he went full Jack style. I'm thinking about donning full that hag. look for myself, just motoring around the house. But anyway, <laughs> I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna see if I can get some hag robes for you. To just... <laughs> I'll,
3: I'll need some help with the beard, though. I need mine would be like white. It look like I'd look more like David Letterman than uh, Jack Smith. That's
2: All okay. Right.
3: Okay. Sorry for the distraction. So, um, Mueller did not go, uh, Mueller, which also was not surprising. Um, Mueller was an incredibly hands-on leader and was very, wanted to know exactly what was going on at all times. And once you told him what was going on, he'd ask you a lot of questions and then make it very clear to you what he wanted your next steps to be. But he was not the kind of guy that would actually go do it. Right. He, I think Mueller had more of a, Almost more of a military uh, respect for chain of authority. Like he's not going to reach down and start doing the job of the guy beneath him. Um, Jack Smith is at a different place in his career uh, than Mueller was when Mueller was special counsel. You know, Mueller had been FBI director for 12 years. Uh, Mm. You know, certainly a distinguished prosecutor in his own past, uh, homicide prosecutor in the DC district, kind of notably. But it had been a long time since Mueller had ever gone into a grand jury. It doesn't surprise me that he didn't go. Nothing wrong with not going. He had unbelievably accomplished people uh, to do that work for him. Jack Smith does also. He's got very serious prosecutors who spent a lot of time in grand juries. It's not like he needs to go in there to supervise what these folks are doing. He went in for some reason. He was either sending a message to Mike Pence about the seriousness uh, of this testimony and how kind of... Um, you know, once in a lifetime it it was. This is not every day uh, that the vice president, former VP comes in to testify against his old boss. Um, or he was possibly sending a message to the public. Like, this is my hand on the tiller. I'm making these calls. Um, I am watching the progress of this very closely. And um, either way, I think the message, that's the message I got from hearing that he was in there I think it's kind of a bold move. I like it. I think it's a good look for him. It's great for his team because it really shows him as a guy as you know, uh, leads from the front and gives them uh, supports them in what they're doing. Doesn't leave them hanging out there to deal with the former number two. Uh, right. In like the I'm willing
2: to do this work too with yeah. you um, down, yeah. you know, down in the weeds, and um, and then here I and maybe he passed out hag robes to all of his team. That would be great. <laughs> so Just, I'm sorry. I'm stuck on the robes. But this is... <laughs> I don't mean to make light of this because this is a very serious situation. And I think that's evidenced by his presence yeah. during the testimony of the former vice president.
3: Yeah. And I'd like to say something about the respectful interaction real quick and, and why I'm not surprised by that at all. So to throw back to um, a little reference from my time is, uh, um in the Bureau. So I was at the White House one day for a meeting and... Um, I was leaving, and I got a call from the White House. Oddly enough, I was like sitting in my car right outside the West Wing, and I was being summoned to the vice president's office about what I had no idea. Turns out, uh, this was right around the beginning of the whole Mike Flynn debacle. And uh, right around the time that we discovered this um, evidence, I'll say, about Mike Flynn's conversations- Having lied
2: to Mike Pence, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So- your deputy um, director at that time?
3: That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I go to the vice president's office and he's in there along with a few other folks, um, Don McGann and others. And basically, long story short, they wanted to see the actual evidence itself that showed that proved conclusively that Mike Flynn had lied to the vice president and, as it turns out, other people about the uh, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. So I had someone get that evidence and bring it back to the White House for me. And I sat with him in a room in the sit room, one of the conference rooms downstairs, because it was uh, confidential inf- or uh, classified information that we were looking at. So we had to go down to the sit room and uh, he read it. And it's the conclusion is not, you know, is it's really, uh, I'm sure it was uncomfortable for him. It was clear that he was frustrated with what he was reading, you know, confronting the fact that he'd been lied to by the National Security Advisor. Um, and he was pretty frustrated. But the entire time, he conducted himself like a gentleman. Uh, and I, will, I give him credit to that to this day, he sat there, he didn't pitch a fit. He was respectful and courteous. And as he got up to leave the room, and this is a guy who's just like had some really bad news laid on him. He stopped to look at me, thanked me for my service and for for helping him out, showing him what he needed to see. and, And then he left the room and I thought, you know what? That was uncomfortable as hell, but Mike Pence, pretty respectful guy. Handled himself like a gentleman. So I would expect that he did the same thing in the grand jury with Jack Smith. Uncomfortable, don't want to be here, fought it, lost, kind of won a little bit, but really pretty much lost, <laughs> had to be yeah. here. But nevertheless, he probably put a smile on his face and shook hands and, you know, exchanged He's also not a target
2: here, you know. Uh, yeah. And so it's, uh, I mean, if nobody ever wants to go testify no. for a grand jury. Oh, ever. God, no. Um, but he's not a target, and and this could potentially uh, whatever comes out of this actually help his campaign for president if he decides to run. So. It could help
3: it or kill it, <laughs> so uh, who knows? Like it's a. Uh... That one's up in the it air. It could I
2: think, it could make Trump even less electable. Let's just say that. Uh, there you go. There whoever, you go. Whoever f- you know steps up and fills that uh, gap. Uh, who if if anyone can do it? I don't. I don't. I don't think putting fingers can. But you know, uh, <laughs> everybody else yeah. is just pulling so dismally. But and yeah. Anyway, I I would expect the same thing. Um, Just a fascinating amount of news this week, my friend, and uh, I I hate to speculate what'll happen next week, but um, I'm sure it'll be even more. So before we go, let's get to one of our listener questions. Again, if you have a question for either me or Andy or both of us, you can send it to us at hello at mullersherote.com and just put Jack in the subject line. Andy, who do we have this week?
3: All right. This week we have Michael, and Michael gave us a really long question, which I'm going to edit significantly here. Sorry, Michael. That's that's what happens in the big time media world. Redacted,
2: Um, redacted, redacted what happened? Oh, you just redacted a bunch of his question. <laughs> <laughs> You're
3: you, right. I you did. got
2: really serious for a second. I know. I was like, when oh you, my God. Did I just step news? on
3: Did I just leak classified onto the Jack podcast? I don't think I did, though, for the record. I don't think I did. And if I did, it was mine. It's all mine. I get to keep it anyway.
2: You can okay. declassify anything you want. You were the head of the That's FBI. That's right.
3: I thought it. So it happened. <laughs> uh, okay. Michael says Is it reasonable to believe or expect that the DOJ, maybe Fonnie Willis in Georgia, and anyone else investigating Trump are thinking about him as a potential flight risk? He has autocratic friends around the world, his own airplane, and the means to get out of the country. Okay, so um, that's a really good question. And flight risk is relevant, short answer is, but not right now. Um, there's really nothing that any of those investigators can do at this point in their investigations. Um Trump is not, has not been charged with anything in Georgia or federally yet. And so he can move around as much as he wants. The, the New York case is a little bit different. They don't do um, pretrial detention in New York anymore uh, on flight risk grounds. So it's kind of not relevant up there. But if Trump is charged in, let's say, in a federal case, in federal cases, uh, you get bail Ah, uh, that the argument to get bail, the government, if they want to deny you bail, which means you get held in jail until your trial, um, it comes down to two things: one is danger to the community, and the other is risk of flight. In this case, if Trump is indicted federally, there's really no argument for danger to the community. He's not; he's got no prior offenses, no violence in his past, anything like that. The only
2: thing I could think of is something that Pete brought up uh, with respect to the to Jack Teixeira. Um, investigation who is being held uh, in pre-trial release not only because he's a physical violent risk to the public but i'll you know all uh and that's that was his thing but pete said you know also if he has been perhaps leaking classified information that could endanger the lives of uh, sources human sources or something like that then that could potentially be it but that's a that's a Big, big long shot. I don't know. You know better than me about that. It's
3: a, it's a bit of a long shot. Um, now, you know, you've got, you've got some things to consider on the danger to the community side for him, just because of all the weapons and everything else, and his statements about, about engaging in mass killings and things like oh,
2: that. Oh, Jack. Yeah,
3: Jack Tashera. Jack Tashera. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, he also had. We don't. It seems like the government doesn't really have a good sense of how much he actually took and where it is and where he put it and it also seems like he's not quite, you know, fully cooperating at this point. So, yeah, I think there's an argument to be made there in the Desher case. Not so much in the Trump case on certainly on danger to the community, risk of flight, you could make an argument there because of the plane, because of his ability to go anywhere in the world because of his money can take, you know, he has the ability to get to where he wants to be. You can answer some of those questions by seizing his passport. You could also let him stay on, you know, home confinement, which I can't imagine that ever happening to someone who's currently running for the presidency. Um, so I don't think there's much there. The bottom line is if you're really worried- Not and during, he showed up to all of his other stuff. Yeah. He's never, you know, he hasn't failed to show up yet. Um, you know, if you're investigating someone and you're really worried about them leaving the jurisdiction and therefore never getting to complete your investigation with an indictment and arrest, um, the answer is hurry up get it done while they're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got, that's yeah. why you, sometimes that's why you bring a case down a little bit before you had planned, because, you know, you got to get it done before somebody runs yeah. away. I'm not saying I, that Trump I think if he that, were a flight you
2: know I mean. risk or anything like that, we might've seen a, a, an arrest or, or if he had some sort of uh, evidence that, um, could be destroyed. I mean, you know, we saw this happen quite a bit, um, with some of the the folks in the Mueller investigation, you know, the, uh, yeah. Roger Stone, uh, you know, they went and they got him because there was evidence about to be destroyed and you could probably get that arrest warrant. But again, yeah, uh, I don't think he's a flight risk. Um, uh, and w- w- can they actually, if he does, let's say, flee to a, a country with no extradition treaty, can he be tried in absentia? Do we do that here? No, we don't on criminal cases.
3: Um but if he did flee, there'd be an outstanding warrant for his arrest as a as a, as a um, an Interpol uh, red notice or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You put a you put the you would take your um, the indictment and you would have it. You would um, log it with Interpol, put out a red notice. He wouldn't be able to travel anywhere that has extradition with the United States <laughs> for fear of getting arrested overseas and then extradited back. So you basically have to stay out of here forever.
2: Mm. which is a result in and of itself. I, Yeah. You know, not trying, Seems like a win-win. We got an I'm indictment. i And he'll uh, never be back here. Yeah. You can't yeah. run for president from Russia. I know no, that. No,
3: <laughs> no, I don't think you could do that. That would be hard. So anyway, thank you, Great Michael, question, for the question. Michael. Yeah, big week this week. Thanks for hanging in there uh, with us. We've gone a little bit long today, but I uh, think it was well worth it.
2: Yeah, there was just too much news. Um, and we will all see you all next week. Uh, also, the Daily Beans will be back on Monday. I've been on hiatus for the last week. Uh, and I know that a lot of people are uh, wanting to get the Daily News back in their ears. So you can uh, tune in to the Daily Beans on Monday. And uh, I appreciate you, Andy. Thank you for answering all my questions. And that was a really, really interesting story about Mike Pence. So thanks for sharing that, too.
3: Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. Uh, thanks, everyone. See you next week. I am your host, Andrew McCabe.
2: And I am your other host, Allison Gill. We'll see you next time.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis,